Hello, and thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that tackles some tough topics, and we have a special guest with us today. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you. It is Eva Gelprin, and Eva, you are with the EFF, the Electronic um, Frontier. What what is the name? I'm shuffling through papers here, and for some reason, the Electronic Electronic Frontier Foundation. Foundation. What is that? Uh, The Electronic Frontier Foundation is a digital civil liberties organization, and our job is to make sure that when you go online, your rights come with you. Oh, I love that. I love that. You know, I'm beginning to get kind of a reputation as a bit of a Luddite because, you know, I go in the fabric store and they want my phone number, and I'm going, why? And, well, it will be special deals. So I give them my phone number, and guess what? There are never any special deals, you know, nothing that I couldn't find Mm -hmm. on my own without giving them the phone number. And so I'm going, well, I think you people are just tracking my purchases. I don't necessarily want to participate in that with you. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm seeing things all over the place, and I'm going, you know, why do you need my email just because I purchased something from you? You know, I'm starting to get a little, little cranky about all that. Am I justified in that, or am I just turning into an old crank? Oh, no, not at all. I think it's really important for people to understand um, where their data goes and who has it and what they're doing with it. It's really part of being uh, an engaged citizen and part of being an engaged consumer. Can we be too paranoid about it? I mean, you read things all the time about people, you know, kind of invading other people's um, bank accounts at the extreme, but also just their information. Uh, Can we be too paranoid or can you not be too paranoid in this day and age? Well, certainly trying to protect everything from everybody all the time is a recipe for going crazy. Um, But we have this thing called threat modeling, which allows you to think about the things that you really want to protect and who you want to protect it from that allows you to then come up with the appropriate steps to take in order to do that and not have to worry about a whole lot of other problems. Uh, So this uh, this is definitely uh, a problem that is possible to solve if you think about it methodically. And that one of the things that we do is uh, we have a resource called Surveillance Self-Defense, which you can get to at ssd.eff.org, which has an entire section on threat modeling, uh, which sort of walks you through how you think about this sort of problem and what you might want to do in order to protect yourself online. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because, like I said, at the fabric store, I was thinking, well, I go there all the time. So, I mean, if there's bargains to be had, okay, I'll trade my phone number for that. But then I started thinking, wait a minute. I I remember when I was in ninth grade, Mr. Grady was my English teacher, and he told all of us, everybody has a price, just make sure yours is high enough. I guess I discovered mine was the price of a bolt of cloth, but um, <laughs> which disappoints me mightily. Um, nevertheless, um, the the idea of being selective but not paranoid. Um, it, it sounds appealing to me. As uh, Eva, as director of cybersecurity for EFF, how did you come about getting into that role? How did what what brought you to this? Well, I have to admit, I've, I was always sort of a hacker. I really enjoyed taking things apart and wasn't particularly diligent about putting them back together again. Uh, and. <laughs> So so I had this sort of background in technology and working in security. Then I went back to school and I got a degree in international relations and political science, uh, and spoke a bunch of languages. And so I was in this sort of unique position uh, of being a person who understood how technology worked, but who also understood how the government worked. And it turns out that there aren't a lot of people who do that. Uh, so uh, I've been Including working for EFS for the last... Oh, oh, God. Yes. Um, 
including people who work for the government. Um, so I, I ended up working at EFS, and I've been working here for the last 11 years. Wow. What are some of the things that you have done with EFF as Director of Cybersecurity? Well, um, among other things, I helped to put together our Surveillance Self-Defense Guide, which I just talked about, uh, ssd.eff.org. I helped to put together the uh, Security Education Companion, which you can get to at sec.eff.org, which has a bunch of training materials and advice for what to do if you want to become a security trainer. I have traveled all over the world uh, training people in vulnerable populations. I have uh, found malware which is being used to track uh, activists and journalists and other people in vulnerable populations and uh, outed the governments that were spying on these people. Um, I have worked on helping to strengthen the tour network. Uh, I have you know, given talks all over the world on, on privacy and security issues. So it's a, it's a pretty busy time over here at EFS. Well, I think that most of us think of our computers or maybe our cell phones as the sources for all of this potential cyber um, invasion. But in fact, there are other sources, aren't there? I mean, I, of course, came across your name from an article that was in the New York Times about thermostats and locks and lights. And I went, wow, these things too. What, what are we not thinking of when we're only thinking of our computers as sources for uh, a threat to our security and privacy? Well, certainly our digital lives exist not only on our computers, um, but also in the form of uh, all the accounts that we log into, um, all of the data that we store in the cloud. Right. So our, uh, certainly our, our problems and our, our digital lives don't just exist on our computers. They also exist in all of the accounts that you log into on your computer. They also exist uh, on your phone. People are increasingly dependent on their phones uh, for keeping themselves uh, digitally connected to the world. And one of the things that your phone does is uh, it gives away your location because no matter where you go, as long as your phone is on, it sends out a signal to the nearest cell phone tower trying to find the tower and letting it know that it is there. Um, and so it's always possible to pinpoint your location if you get the information off of the towers. Um, so that's, that's something that a lot, not a lot of people think about. And then, of course, there's the entire Internet of Things. So everything from uh, Internet-connected toasters to the Fitbit around your wrist to your Apple Watch to uh, the um, – your internet-connected thermostat, all of these things also give away information about you and frequently are not as well secured as other types of devices. So how can we secure that? I mean, is there a methodology for securing them, or are we just vulnerable in that respect? Well, it really depends. Uh, For example, there has been some really interesting recent research into uh, fitness apps which uh, mapped the use of these, of these apps all over the world and gave away the location of uh, U.S. soldiers at secret bases in the Middle East. Oh simply because it never occurred to the people who were making these apps that, uh, in a, that by tracking all of their users' information and by making it public, that they were also making public uh, information belonging to people who were in locations that they did not want to give away. Um, and in fact, we're a matter of national security. 
So that's, that's one thing that can happen. Um, also, frequently, the biggest problem is not that some malicious outsider will get their hands on the information from uh, an item from the information from the Internet of Things, um, but that someone in your family or that you are close to who um, set up the system in the first place uh, might use them in the context of domestic abuse. Uh, for example, it's really common. All right. Yep, absolutely. Oh, that, and that was going okay. to be my next my next question. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so it's really it, it's really common in domestic abuse situations for the person who installed all of the Internet of Things devices to be the person who has uh, the, all of the administrative privileges on these devices. And uh, the person who is being abused, the victim, is frequently locked out. And so they don't have power over a variety of cameras and sensors in their own home, uh, which is extremely frightening and disempowering. And I believe that that is happening more and more. I haven't seen a lot of data, but I have seen more anecdotal evidence that that is happening more and more. Um, we saw it, we've seen it for years with the cell phones. Um, mm -hmm. with people tracking, abusers tracking women with, uh, because of their cell phones. And, uh, but I have not heard of the uh, security systems within the house before. I mean, is this something that's, that's being happening more and more frequently, or am I just out of the loop on this? No, this is absolutely something that's happening more frequently as Internet of Things things become more ubiquitous in people's homes. Uh, for example, it used to be the case that if you wanted to have a camera set up in your house in order to, say, track your pet's eating habits, that you had to go and rig it yourself. And now you can go and buy such an item from your nearest Best Buy. And now that these are very common consumer items, they're frequently found inside the home. And once they're frequently found inside the home, they're frequently used for abuse. Hmm. Is this something, have you seen, are you aware of any court cases where this has been brought up? Is there, is this become a, becoming a legal issue at this point or just a... Um, oh yeah, there was, uh, uh, there was a, a legal case, there was a, a murder case in which part of the conversation between uh, the alleged uh, murderer and the victim uh, was recorded by uh, Alexa in, uh, in the home. And so they went and, and got the information from, uh, from Alexa because Alexa is, is always listening because Alexa is waiting for commands. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Um, that's kind of amazing. Um, okay, so we know that you know, all of these electronic devices that surround us can help us a great deal, but we also know that in certain situations like domestic violence, domestic abuse, um, they can actually hurt us. Um, is this something that uh, most people know? Is this an education issue uh, that we're looking at? Um, are there resources for people to go to who are experiencing this where they can get help? Um, you've mentioned a couple of your websites, but are there other places, um, you know, do police departments uh, help with anything like this or, that you're aware of? Some police departments are extremely well-resourced and have uh, strong backgrounds in this area, but some police departments don't, and it really varies from department to department. And so sometimes you will mm -hmm. contact your police department and they will know exactly what you're talking about and you will have people who can help you out. And sometimes you will contact your police department and they don't even know what an Alexa is 
or why it might be listening or why someone else is listening on your Alexa and why that might be some sort of problem. Uh, so it really, it really varies. And one of the things that we're really trying to do is to educate people who are working in domestic abuse shelters uh, and uh, people who are working in uh, in the legal field and in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. What what are you doing? What kind of programs, efforts are you doing to try and educate the legal um, community? Well, mostly we're just trying to make uh, we're trying to make training materials available so that mm-hmm. uh, people who are involved in the legal profession can largely like bring themselves up to date on the issue. Okay. Um, and advocates, I think I've been talking about this kind of thing for years. I don't think to this extent, I think, you know, with the, like I said before, talking about the cell phones being commonly used, et cetera. Um, in the article um, that was mentioned, um, that I mentioned earlier in the New York Times, um, it's not just a case of um, tracking and perhaps threatening uh, a, a victim. It's also a situation, that, you know, we use the term crazy making. Um, or gaslighting, and mm-hmm. apparently that is common as well. Um, the one example that was cited in the article was the woman who uh, would turn on an appliance and it would be switched off, turn it on, switch off. Um, the lock on her door would change, the codes of numbers would change on her door, etc. Um, is, is, are you aware of this kind of crazy-making behavior? Do you have any examples other than the ones I quoted? I've had some uh, some experience with uh, victims of abuse coming to me with stories of having the the thermostat changed, having the you know, time on their clock changed, having the lights go on and off at random, uh, and increasingly feeling as if they were going crazy. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with the uh, origins of the term gaslighting, um, but I it I was saw them, ah, I saw the movie. <laughs> Ah, so you know time ago, and, and I love using that term because you know anybody under you know usually usually uh, unless you're involved in this field, they, you know people under you know sixty don't really even know what the term means. And I love using it, but you, you, let's let's review it again. Where what's the origin mm-hmm. here? So the origin of the term gaslighting is it comes from a play that was later made into a movie, I think in the 30s, called Gaslight. And uh, it's set, I think, in the, um, in the 1880s. Uh, the point being, at this point, uh, people have light in their homes. It is not candles. It is gaslight. And uh, a man is uh, trying to make his partner feel as if she is going crazy and one of the ways in which he does it is he will uh, dim the lights when she's not looking and then deny that the lights have been dimmed. So this is the origin of the term where you change Mm -hmm. subtly change reality and then deny that you ever did it in order to make uh, someone feel crazy. But um, the thing that makes this term so fantastically apt for the Internet of Things is that you can literally remotely dim someone's lights. Mm. Mm. Very fascinating. You know, and and clarify something for me, because I confess I I live on the edge of being a Luddite. I really do. Um, I'm I'm, I'm not there. I'm not over the edge. I'm I'm enough of, uh, you know, I, I have my needs, so I'm not a total Luddite. But what 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 does it mean by Internet of Things? Um, the Internet of Things just refers to uh, Internet-enabled objects like 
light bulbs ah. and toasters and refrigerators, uh, like thermostats and um, uh, your uh, electronic scale, uh, anything that has, you, know, you buy the thing and then it has a website and then you can control it from an app, that kind of thing. That's, those are all Internet of Things things. Why does, and this is a total random thought, but why on earth would you need electronics to control your toaster? How hard is that? Well, you don't need any of it. We have managed to make it through thousands of years of human civilization without having to remotely control our toasters. Um, but there are definitely some cases in which uh, installing uh, Internet of Things things can be you know, helpful for your home. There are people who like being able to uh, change the lights on a voice-activated command in their home, uh, who want to be able to turn on the television using a voice-activated command, who want to tell uh, a, you know, the thermostat to, uh, to change temperature, who want to be able to track uh, what, uh, what the temperature has been in the house in order to keep everything maximally uh, cozy or maximally efficient. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of different reasons. Um, it is very nice before you go to bed to be able to turn off all the lights in the house without having to go to every single room. Um, there, are, there are lots of things that people might want to do and, and that these sort of in-the-home devices enable them to do. But certainly none of it is necessary. <laughs> but nothing's free. Isn't there a cost? Are we paying a cost for all of these things? Um, sometimes the cost is security. Uh, sometimes mm -hmm. these, these devices are not very secure. Um, or even mm -hmm. if they are very secure from outside attackers, they are not secure from uh, other people inside your home. And so, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so they can sometimes be used as... Um, the sort of instruments of abuse, uh, especially when there are cameras inside the home or uh, remote locks, <laughs> that can be uh, that can be very intrusive and scary. Mm. And this is happening more and more with abuse victims, domestic violence victims, uh, intimate partner violence. Um, and if a woman suspects this, I've heard of cases where women suspect that they're being followed. They go to the police department. The police just kind of say, well, you know, she's crazy. Uh, she keeps thinking she's being tracked or whatever. Uh, have you encountered that where, where people who are not aware of the intricacies and invasiveness of these devices kind of dismiss it as just somebody's wild imagination? Oh, absolutely. And it is much more common for women to be dismissed than men. Uh, because women are hysterical, women are you know always seeing things. Women can't be trusted. Uh, women don't understand how technology works. There are all kinds of of really insidious um, uh, stereotypes about the relationship between women and technology uh, that make it more difficult for women to be believed by authority figures. Um, some um, police departments also don't have the uh, technical background to understand how this is being done or uh, how to find out if it's being done, uh, which can be really disturbing. And so uh, if you have these kinds of suspicions, it can be really difficult to, uh, to go to the police for help, depending on what kind, how well-trained your local police department is. Mm -hmm. So where, if a woman suspects she's being tracked like that, is there an option to just turn off everything electronic and go back to, you know, 
lighting fires in the fireplace and, uh, you know, sending smoke signals or something? Or, you know, what? That's certainly, what, one, of, that's certainly one of the options. Uh, usually mm-hmm. what I tell uh, victims of domestic abuse or people who suspect that they're being tracked um, to do is to try to distinguish between a device compromise and an account compromise. Because a device compromise uh, can be really difficult to detect and difficult to get rid of. But an account compromise is actually fairly easy to detect and pretty easy to get rid of. And the way that you do this is... Okay, when you say device, you mean the, right. the electronic implement, whatever it happens to be, right? Yeah, your, your iPad okay. or your phone or your computer yeah. or your light bulb. Um, so you... Whether uh, So what we're trying to distinguish is between the compromise of the device and the compromise of an account. Um, okay. And the way that you do this is you try to eliminate the account compromise. And you can do this by uh, changing your password. And uh, if the account allows it, turning on two-factor authentication. And what okay. two-factor well, authentication is... Yeah. Hmm? So right. explain what so, that is. Yeah. Yes. So two-factor authentication uh, is, uh, is a fairly straightforward concept. When you log into an account and you give it your username and your password, you are using one factor of authentication, and that factor is your password. Two, factor of, uh, two factors of authentication just means that in addition to your password, you now need something else in order to get into the account. And that something else is usually a code which is provided um, to another device, such as your phone. So uh, there are many different ways in which you can receive such a code. Uh, the uh, most common way is through a text message. So you enter your password, and then you get a text message to your phone with a number, and then you enter that number, and then you get into the uh, you can log into the account. Uh, this is the least secure method of two-factor, and the reason that it is the least secure is because it's possible to uh, intercept people's um, uh, text messages without much difficulty. But mm-hmm. what you can do is you can install a uh, an authenticator app. Uh, like Google Authenticator or Duo. And uh, you can have the number generated by that application. Um, So you you log into a website, you enter your password, um, your uh, Authenticator app generates um, an authentication code, you enter that authentication code, you get into your account. And what this means is that if somebody steals your password or guesses your password or in some other ways gets their hands on your password, they still can't log into your account because they don't have the second factor of authentication. And mm-hmm. this is incredibly useful um, against, uh, against hackers, against people who are you know, interested in getting at your financial information uh, and all kinds of things like that because uh, passwords are pretty easy to steal, but that second factor of authentication can be very difficult. Uh, it can also be useful against a uh, domestic abuser, provided the domestic abuser does not have physical access to your phone and they are attempting to log into your account. So sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't. But what you can do is when you change all of these things, you know that it is not possible for the other person to get into your account. So if they're still tracking you, then maybe it is because they have gotten into your device. Okay. And that's a, a trickier problem, right? 
Do we have to just that is a trickier problem? At that point, you start leaving your at that point you start leaving your device at home. You start uninstalling things. Uh, you know, you you want to sort of dig down into the problem a little bit. But honestly, um, nearly every uh, case that I have had come in to my office has been an account compromise rather than a device compromise, just because accounts are easy to compromise and devices are tricky. Well, you know, when I went uh, a few years ago, when I started doing the, you know, um, uh, banking on my cell phone, um, and then they started doing this two-tiered um, uh, thing where they send me, and, and I thought this is so ridiculous because, you, so you send me, you know, I, I, or if I'm sitting in front of my my laptop and I get want to get into my bank account and I use my password and then they text me a thing and I'm thinking, so what's to say that somebody can't just see that text and get in anyway or steal my phone and get in anyway? I mean, I, I, I just didn't see that as anything other than just being an annoyance. Um, but this other method that you were talking about, um, the um, and I'm looking at my notes here, the authenticator app, Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That that sounds like it would be much more efficient. Um, are these things costly? Is it is it costly to get an nope. authenticator app? Okay. The authenticator All app right. is free. Okay. And and that's through Google, Apple, what? Yeah. Uh, you can okay. get it um, on the Google Play Store or you can get it on the iTunes Store. They're both available. Okay. All right. Terrific. Okay. So – if I find, if I'm, uh, you know, trying to leave an abuser or whatever, and I find that um, the account, I'm being tracked somehow, but mm-hmm. it's not with the account. I, I do my due diligence and I check out the accounts and I, and I decide that it must be in the device. Wouldn't it be easier to just throw out everything um, than to try to it take would, the risk? It would, but know? I'm I mean, extremely be costly, careful. But... I'm extremely careful when it comes to giving device uh, device advice to um, people who are in domestic abuse situations. Because on the one hand, sometimes when you know that you're being watched and you know how you're being watched, um, the first temptation, of course, is to throw everything away. Um, But that can sometimes give that knowledge away to your abuser and might further enrage them, causing them to engage in um, even more serious abuse. So that is a call that the um, that every individual has to make for themselves, depending on their kind of appetite for risk and their understanding of their abuser. Good, good point. Very good point. Um, so if I and when you were saying that you could somehow sometimes if you know that you're being watched and you know how you're being watched, that sometimes you can actually use that in your favor. I'm thinking back in the days when I was working in an office that had a very um, I thought kind of uh, gossipy person, and you knew that whatever you said to that person would go to back to anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, instead of just not saying anything, I just made sure that whatever I said, I would be fine if with it going back to the other person. And I kind of Absolutely. used that. I guess I was a master manipulator there, but I kind of used <laughs> that because I knew that's what was going to happen. Is that what you're talking about? Is that is that a potential as well that you could kind of purposely make sure that the information that's being overheard is information that um, you can use? Sometimes. Certainly, knowledge is power. Uh, And understanding the ways in which you are being watched um, allows you a certain amount of wiggle room that you wouldn't have otherwise. One of the ways in which um, abusers carry out their abuse is by making themselves seem um, omnipotent and omniscient. 
I know where you're going. I know what you're doing all the time. Everything you do is being watched. Uh, and therefore, you cannot do anything which is outside of my power and escape is impossible. Um, so knowing where the limits of your abuser's power is, uh, is really one of the ways for victims to reclaim their power. Um, understanding the exact way in which you are being watched allows you to circumvent this and also to really start to take control back um, of, of your digital life. Yeah. That's tough, I think, that taking control back. So if you can do it Absolutely. You know, with, with, with the problem that I can see is that not a lot of us are really technologically smart. Not a lot of us would really know how to do some of this stuff. And I'm sure that as overworked as most police departments and shelters are, I would be surprised if uh, other than uh, met major metropolitan areas that most of the folks there have the resources to advise and educate when it comes to this kind of electronic abuse. Um, do you see, is there any kind of a nonprofit coming up on the horizon? Is there anything that you've seen that is kind of dedicated to helping folks who are being electronically abused to um, well, this, uh, track it down? There are, there are all kinds of organizations when it comes to sort of internet harassment. Uh, there are organizations like Crash Override or Badass. Uh, there are organizations that uh, train people who work in uh, domestic abuse shelters, and so there are often experts at domestic abuse shelters that, uh, that do understand how this stuff is done. And um, while victims of abuse are sometimes not particularly technical, honestly, neither are abusers. Abusers are lazy and they're not that smart. Uh, they will do as little as, as necessary in order to maintain control of their victims. And so figuring them out is sometimes not very hard. Like it's, it's not impossible. Their, um, their primary goal is to make their victims feel powerless and to make them uh, themselves seem uh, extremely powerful and much smarter and much more effective than they really are. The more you know about what they're actually doing and what those limits are, the more you remove their power and their mystique and their hold over their victim. Yes, absolutely. That it's all about that control. So if mm -hmm. you can, and you know, they'll use whatever they can to control, including electronic devices, if if, if that's effective. Yep. Um, are you aware, now you said that you go all over the country, have you been uh, focusing on the domestic violence issues uh, surrounding uh, electronic devices and electronic stalking, if you will? Um, it is an issue that I've been focused on since about February, but uh, I travel all over the world. So I uh, deal with people in vulnerable populations uh, in the United States, but also in Mexico and Canada and the post-Soviet states and China and Hong Kong and, you know, all, all over the world. Uh, I'm pretty busy. <laughs> and, and people yeah. face a, a variety of different kinds of problems. Hmm. Is there any kind of legal recourse for women who found, find themselves in this situation? That you're um, well, stalking is illegal. Harassment is illegal. Um, mm -hmm. Certain types of electronic uh, harassment uh, also violate the wiretapping statutes. Um, 
especially if you are uh, listening in without consent to, uh, to people's phone calls in a two-party consent state. So there are, there are all kinds of ways of getting at um, these kinds of abusers uh, from a legal standpoint, but frequently uh, the victims of abuse are not in a position to hire an attorney. They often don't have control over their own finances. They don't have control over their own lives. And they fear uh, further angering their abuser. So the tools mm-hmm. exist, but there are a lot of reasons why people don't use them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the things that um, I saw in doing just a little bit of research on this issue is that it does tend to be, and it makes sense, women who are a little bit more economically privileged than, than not who face this particular issue, probably because electronic devices are expensive, so you have to be able mm-hmm. to afford them to start with. Um, but it, it, it interests me because for many years I've had an interest in the wealthy woman who experiences domestic violence. And I find very few resources, um, very few uh, research studies about the wealthy woman. It's basically assumed that if you're wealthy, you don't have any problems or your problems are minimized because you've got money. Um, But for some reason, they seem to forget that just because he has money or the marriage has money doesn't mean she has any control over it. And yeah, one of the primary tools of abuse is... Yeah, and it's bugged me for years. And to mm-hmm. see this, then, these, these electronic devices, which can symbolize, you know, a certain level of income, et cetera, and that this is becoming more and more uh, prevalent, uh, makes me wonder if maybe, and I'm just kind of thinking out loud here, this isn't your bailiwick, but I'm wondering if maybe it's time that we do do more research on what can be helpful to women with a, a certain level of income or a family level of income that's a little higher, because I think that they face issues that... Um, most of us, most of our society is not aware of, I think, when they're in domestic violence situations. I'm just kind of musing out loud. I don't know what that has to do with our conversation other than it's my area of interest. Um, but well, this certainly... uh, one of the things that we're starting to see with the greater prevalence of, uh, of Internet-connected devices is that you don't have to be rich to have these devices in your house. And increasingly, we're seeing these devices in the homes of people who are very solidly middle class. Uh, and mm-hmm. this is a kind of technology that really only continues to expand downwards. So uh, mm-hmm. while this used to be a problem only of the rich or of families uh, that contained engineers, um, this is increasingly a middle-class problem, and it's only going to get worse, and it's only going to affect more and more people. So I think we need to uh, sort of nip it in the bud and, and start yeah. doing education and awareness reaching it uh, awareness raising and outreach now um, before it becomes completely ubiquitous. Absolutely. Now, we haven't talked about children. We've talked about the victim, but presumably the spouse partner victim, not, not the children. Have children been singled out uh, for, for this kind of electronic um, stalking, if you will, um, that you're aware of? Is, is this something where it's kind of adult to adult, or do, does the um, abuser also single out children to be abused with electronic well, the abuser, means. The abuser can certainly abuse children using these electronic devices. Um, but these electronic um, devices are also used and the, the tools which are, are also marketed as ways of keeping track of your children that are not abusive. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Um, for yeah. example, if you are the you know uh, parent of a teenager and you want to know where your teenager is at all times, you say, I will get you a cell phone and I will pay your cell phone bill on the condition that you install this app on your phone so that I know where you are. Uh, and this gains me some peace of mind and is therefore useful to me. You gain their consent. Then, uh, then what you're doing is not stalking. What you're doing is not harassment. What you're doing is parenting. And it uses exactly the same tools. And the main difference between, uh, between that and, uh, and abuse is just consent. <laughs> Very straightforward. <laughs> So when your teenager gets mouthy, you can say, you made the agreement. <laughs> mm-hmm. And if you don't want that on there, you can start paying your own bill. Is that the technique we can take, I suppose? Yeah. Um, I'm not suggesting that parents spy on their children without their consent. I think that that's actually rather creepy. Um, but I think that it is, it, it is entirely within the realm of reasonable parenting uh, to talk to your child and make that kind of trade-off. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, especially in this day and age. Um, in domestic violence situations, though, I'm thinking, you know, is this another um, area for potential control where if the, the child has the electronic device in, and we're not only tracking and monkeying around with the uh, the home or the, the, the partner's electronics, but we're also monkeying around with the child, uh, maybe sending messages, et cetera. What about the good that can be done with electronic um, devices when we're talking about domestic violence? Is there some good to be done or is it all threats and danger? Well, I think that the, the primary good that you can get is when people feel that they have control over their own devices, that uh, they understand what is happening in their home and in their personal space, and it is all done with their consent and knowledge. Uh, that is the potential good of, uh, of Internet of Things things, of monitoring devices. Uh, these are all fine things. If you want them in your home and you understand what they do and you are the person who controls them and you know who else has control over them uh, and you're okay with that. It's when this sort of agreement breaks down <laughs> that the potential for abuse really starts to crop up. Right. Um, are there any organizations that you're aware of where a woman might go to to get some assistance uh, if she suspected, suspects that she – I might have asked you this question before, but um, – Yeah, yeah, you did. I did. So you were talking about yeah. crash override. Crash um, override and badass. And badass. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, it really, it really depends on exactly what the problem is. <laughs> Like whether it's a matter of online harassment or if they're worried that there is some sort of device on their or or, uh, that their device has been compromised or if they know that somebody has access to their devices inside their home and they want help blocking them out. These are all different kinds of problems. Right, right. There's there's no one-stop shop for it. Okay, but there is something out there if you can um, figure it out and, and try to track it down. Um, that seems to be the way of the world now. You just you start with one little thread and you keep pulling until pretty soon you found the whole sweater. But sometimes it takes a while. Yeah. Um, it takes a lot of thread pulling sometimes. Are there any um, uh, government programs that you're aware of that would help? Uh, None that I can think about top of my head. Is a constitutional issue? No, not really. No. Okay. Um, all right. So we've got. Um, 
intimate partners, partners or intimate violence or abuse of loved ones. But is there a situation where people are threatened by the corporate ownership of that information? Uh, is, is that something, uh, I mean, we, we usually speak of that globally, but I'm thinking, you know, in an abuse situation, um, you know, police can, can get information and there's all sorts of sources for information. And not all the people who have access to this information are nice people. Um, is, Absolutely. Has, have you, yeah. So is that an issue that uh, has popped up with domestic violence situations? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is, uh, I, I have seen cases of uh, sort of love int at, um, uh, at the large uh, sort of platform companies. So people using their, uh, their administrative access to get at user data that they would not otherwise uh, have, uh, have access to uh, and mm-hmm. using it in their, um, in their personal lives. And uh, I, I'm fairly certain there was a recent report of this at Facebook, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and then it's also possible to get your hands on this information uh, through a subpoena. So through legal action, if a company is keeping that data, then um, if as part of a lawsuit you, uh, you need this information, you can have a lawyer file a subpoena, give it to uh, or serve it on, on the company, and the company will often comply. Often. I noticed that adjective, often, <laughs> or adverb, I guess, often comply. Um, it depends on the case. Um, and whether whether or not they think it's a it's a legitimate subpoena, you can't just send them a subpoena written in crayon. I mean, you can, but the chances that they'll comply with it are fairly low. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so um, I'm wondering, with your particular organization, um, you you do a lot more than just the domestic violence issues. What are some of the other issues with electronic? Uh, invasiveness, if you will, that your organization, EFF, deals with? Well, we do a bunch of stuff. We have uh, an entire floor of vicious attack lawyers, uh, and we do impact litigation. So one of the things that we've been doing for the last uh, several years is uh, suing the U.S. government over their uh, program of warrantless surveillance. Uh, we mm-hmm. also do all kinds of, of other impact litigation. We have, we're have we doing litigation regard, uh, in uh, in regards to uh, searches of electronic devices at the border. Uh, we also have an entire floor of, um, of software developers. And so we have a couple of software projects which uh, produce um, some software which is useful for protecting your privacy and security online. And that includes um, Privacy Badger, which is a uh, web browser extension for uh, Firefox and Chrome which eats uh, tracking cookies, prevents you from being tracked on the web, and also HTTPS Everywhere, which makes sure that if you are going to a website that supports HTTPS, that you're using it by default, um, which is increasingly common. Uh, And we also have a project called CertBot, which makes it much easier for uh, people who are setting up websites to uh, to use SSL in order to make sure that they that those websites are encrypted, and it is more difficult for uh, for people to spy on their uh, on web traffic. Hmm. You know, I was recently reading about a device that you can uh, or an app, I guess, where um, if somebody rings your doorbell, you can see who it is when you're on your your uh, via your cell phone. 
And I'm thinking, I was thinking that sounds pretty handy, but then I was thinking, why do I care if somebody rings my doorbell? <laughs> I say I am borderline Luddite, right? Um, <laughs> um, but I'm wondering if something like that also has the potential for these kinds of invasive problems or if that would be something simple that could help with a, a problem of... Well, know, that has the potential to be incredibly invasive. That gives that gives somebody uh, potentially access to a camera showing your front door at all times. Oh, okay. so, <laughs> showing like something that could be right for abuse. Uh-huh. Showing oh, who's see, coming to see me, showing when you're coming and going. Yes, they can see, figure out my when mind you're home. doesn't go there. It just doesn't go there. <laughs> <laughs> you would think at this stage in my life I'd be much more devious and be able to think of those things. But okay, still right, time. so that would not be helpful. <laughs> so I have to I have to ask you a personal question. You don't have to answer it if you don't want to. But what kinds of devices do you have? Have you, well, instead of asking what you have, I'll ask you what kinds of devices did you decide you don't want in your life? Um, I had a um, I had a partner bring home. Uh, an Alexa and uh, plug it in and, and start adding, you know, making it do a whole bunch of things. And I came yeah. home, saw it, unplugged it, and told him to please take it out of my house. Ah. <laughs> you know, I have to laugh because my daughter gave me, I don't think it's an Alexa, it's like a junior grade model of that. It mm-hmm. doesn't do all the things that Alexa does. And she said, oh, this is so great. And then when you drive in the driveway, you can have your cell phone turn on the lights. And I went, why would I do that? I mean, it, it, I think I can still make my finger go flip and put the light on. I, why would I need an electronic thing to turn on my lights. I, I just don't get it. I just couldn't see any usefulness for it. And she gave it to me last Christmas, and it's still sitting in a box on my desk, and I'm thinking, I don't want this. It. It's just one more thing to have to learn. See, I, I'm really mm-hmm. just a Luddite, I guess. Um, but I, it, it encourages me to hear you say that you decided not to have the Alexa. To me, it's just kind of creepy. It's just kind of creepy no, I don't, having this. I don't like the idea of something that is always listening in my home. I think that's incredibly invasive. Uh, but that's a choice that, that everybody makes individually, and I respect yeah. that. Uh, the most important thing is, uh, is making an informed choice uh, which allows you to, uh, to consent. And if you're not making an informed choice, if you don't understand that the Alexa is always on and always listening, uh, then you may later come to regret it. So I just spent a week in a, a friend's home in Costa Rica, and she had Alexa. Mm-hmm. The whole entire mm-hmm. time that we were talking and everything, Alexa is storing that information? Uh, yes. I'll be darned. I'm trying to scour my brain to see if I said anything illegal or nasty. I don't think I did. I'm okay. Um, Shoo! <laughs> <laughs> bit the bullet on that one, I think. Um, when... When, you know, going back to the sad case where you said the Alexa actually recorded the homicide, um, was there any uh, problem getting that evidence introduced? Um, I mean, it's not a human being. It's not, you know, it, it, no, it would be... No, I don't be think there was any problem. Huh, that's interesting. It was a recording. It was a recording made in the home. Huh. Huh, huh, huh. Okay. Well, I suppose, you know, I mean, it certainly didn't, it didn't help her with her safety issues, uh, or her. I'm no. assuming the victim might have been female. Um, so, you know, I mean, it might help with prosecuting the bad guy, but 
I don't know. I just don't don't see uh, the benefit to having anything like that. I mean, I don't know. That's me. Okay, getting back to our issue of uh, uh, electronic surveillance, if you will. Um, we're talking about things in the home, but there is there potential. When I go up to the uh, the ATM, I know they're recording my face, and I know that if I, you know, turn up missing tomorrow, they might be able to, you know, uh, use all of those cameras, et cetera, to try to track me down or whatever. But is that information really secure? Would it be accessible if there was a domestic violence person, abuser, or um, some other nefarious character who wanted to access that information and learn more about me? Is that also a threat? It depends on how the camera is set up and uh, where it is set up and how it's hooked up and the banner in which it is uh, recording. So that varies from camera to camera. Not all uh, cameras on all ATMs are created equal. Are there any laws about these uh, buildings and ATM machine owners and everything? Are there any laws that they have to follow when they do those setups? Yes, but they do not have to do with... um, with security, and that there there are no laws saying that these cameras have to be secure. Ah, that seems like a big gaping hole to me. Well, it can be really difficult to mandate uh, to mandate security because then the question becomes, where is the line? Um, at what point are you responsible for the security of the camera? At what point do you stop being responsible for security of the camera? If there's a known vulnerability in the camera, do you have to patch it? What if you can't patch the vulnerability? What if there are no remote patches? So there's, there are a lot of different questions when it comes to, to these issues. You can very about, easily disappear uh, down a rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. What, well, what about electronic devices? I, I recently read a little mystery novel, um, and some some electronic genius uh, plugged into uh, an escalator and uh, made the escalator do terrible things, and you know because he wanted to murder people. Um, but I, it started me thinking: wait, all of these things are electronic, all of them, and any you know if 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 there are not a lot of regulations about keeping these systems secure, and of course I'm not naive enough to believe that just having regulations would mean that they are all secure at all times, but it would seem like it would help mitigate it. Is, does EFF look at regulations for these kinds of electronic systems, or is that just way we beyond look at, what... We I look mean, at regulations, we look at, uh, at consumer rights, we look at consumer privacy. These, uh, these are all things that we are deeply concerned about and, uh, and that we work on all the time. Okay. There well, is also a, an organization uh, called I Am the Cavalry, uh, which works entirely on securing the Internet of Things. Uh, from a policy and a technical perspective. Wow, what's the name of it? I am. I am the cavalry. Huh. Boy, the world is opening up to me. <laughs> I've never heard of it. Never heard of it. Um, but interesting. Knowing what you know and having done the work that you do, how would you advise um, a woman who may or may not be single? But what would you advise a woman about setting up? her home with certain electro or or person uh, with certain electronic devices, what would you advise? Um, I think the primary advice that I would give is uh, to understand what you have installed in your home, Uh, understand who has administrative privileges on it, 
and maintain control of those devices yourself. Um, don't let somebody else take over the Internet of Things in your house um, because that is one of the things that really enables abuse. Uh, the notion that your partner or your boyfriend or your son or that some man takes care of the technology and then women just sort of ignore it and use it when it's useful uh, is, is one of the like really nasty, dark patterns that enables this kind of abuse. Mm-hmm. I have help installing these devices or setting them up, but then mm-hmm. I retain the ability to have passwords that I set up my own password. Is that enough protection or not enough? Um, that's frequently enough protection. It really depends on um, on your threat model. It depends on who who you are up against. But uh, for most people, that that is often enough. Okay, it's certainly a good first mm-hmm. step. All right. So uh, that uh, is a very basic thing to do whenever mm-hmm. you have anything uh, installed. Make it your password. And uh, I think the other thing that crosses my mind is I think a lot of us, um, we, we get something set up and then we just leave it. Mm-hmm. Would it be wise to review these things periodically to make sure that they haven't been hampered with or they haven't been um, messed around with? Well, frequently these uh, devices require security updates. Always take your security updates. Otherwise, it is possible to break into these devices using known and reported vulnerabilities. Mm. Some of the websites that I go to, well, every three months, I, it, it's annoying to me, quite frankly, um, but I understand now a little bit better why it's necessary. But every three months, they'll say, your password will expire. You need to set up a oh, new one. This is absolutely terrible behavior. I really wish websites would stop doing this. Um, really? Yes. Telling people to change their passwords every 90 days generally encourages them to pick easy passwords or to forget their yeah. passwords all the time. Uh, what people yeah. should really be doing with their passwords is using a password safe like 1Password or KeePassX. Uh, and they should have one application which contains all of their accounts and all of their passwords and every one of their passwords should be long and unique. Ah. This way, no if more one of your accounts gets no compromised... No more using my kid's birthday, huh? <laughs> nope. That way, if one of your accounts gets compromised, um, yeah. the uh, person who compromises your account can't just try the same username and password with a bunch of other services and get into all of your other services. This is called uh, well, compartmentalization. And I, I knew that, that you, you have to have a unique password for each thing, mm-hmm. um, which becomes cumbersome because for me, I mean, I can't remember them all, so I've got them written in a book that's sitting next to my computer. Now, how secure is that? You know, I mean, um, well, it's a, that, it is as secure as your physical book. Um, at least yeah. if somebody steals your book of passwords, you know it's gone and you know to go change all your passwords. I am not a person who, who runs around telling people, that there is only one true way to do things. People should do the thing that works for them. Um, but yeah. generally what I recommend is an application which, uh, which fixes this problem because then you don't have to worry about protecting a book. Absolutely. And I think I'm gonna, as soon as we hang up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with that. Um, very good advice. All right. um, I, <laughs> I've learned a few things. Thank you very much. And you know, I, I'm, I'm shocked by that because I, when I 
I tend to be a little resistant to electron, you know, electronic devices and, and technology. Not, you know, not totally, but a little. I tend to be skeptical, skeptical and I tend to say, do I really need that? Is that going to be more, is it going to be more inconvenient for me to learn that than to just keep doing it the way that I'm doing it? And a lot of times I'll say, yeah. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. <laughs> now I'm feeling even better. <laughs> Eva Galprin, thank you so much for joining me and sharing all of your vast knowledge. I'm I'm shocked, and I wish I could just sit down. I wish I could put you on my Christmas card list and you could just send me all these updates every Christmas with my Christmas card. <laughs> you know, well, keep me informed. Uh, if you would like, we do keep uh, we do have a mailing list. Uh, so if you go to www.eff.org, you can subscribe to our mailing list and you can get regular updates on what EFF is up to. Well, actually, I already did that. So yay. Yay for me. (laughs) Eva, thank you so much. I plan on getting these updates from EFF because I think this is an area in which we all need to become very knowledgeable and not assume that we can go find the 15-year-old next door to help us if we need help. We need to be aware as women and as adults that, you know, this is something that we need to take control of and we don't want to get this control over to, to just anybody. So thank you for sharing your knowledge. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening to Three Women, Three Ways. Join us again next week. 